Welcome into the fade. I'm Clay Travis, and I'm still mad. And he's Todd Furman, <laughs> and he's probably going to enjoy it. Furman, I'll start here. I'll just, I'll just be honest with you. Hey, the I, floor's yours. This, this is a safe space. Get it all off your chest. At least think of the positive before you go. I already teed off. I already teed off. Saturday night, <laughs> I could not sleep. Sunday night, I could not sleep. There is a good chance that Monday night, I will not be able to sleep either. Let me just say this. I don't mind losing, okay? I am a competitive person. I uh, have certainly lost and won my fair share of, uh, of things over the years. Uh, I, uh, I am, you know, probably too fearless in many of my choices, okay? I hate when people lose because of cowardice, because of incompetence, because of stupidity, because of lack of self-confidence in themselves. And what I saw from Ryan Tannehill, and I know there's lots of things you can talk about in that game against the Bengals. Uh, The thing that I would question from a coaching perspective is not quarterback sneaking it on third or fourth down in the fourth quarter with six and a half minutes to go or so uh, and getting stopped like the Titans did. But ultimately, Ryan Tannehill turned the ball over three times in interceptions. The rest of the seven quarterbacks in the divisional round combined turned the ball over with interceptions three times. Furman, I went and looked. Ryan Tannehill has averaged in five football games 150.8 passing yards, 1.4 touchdowns, one pick. In his last two home playoff games, both losses, the team has scored 13 points against the Baltimore Ravens ended on an interception to a uh, like backup, backup, backup wide receiver. And uh, this one where they scored 16 points ended up on an interception to uh, the most covered guy on the field, Nick Westbrook-Akina. He threw two touchdowns and four picks in those two games, a combined 29 points, 14 and a half points. And what's so frustrating about this, I've been to every Titans playoff game that has ever occurred in the last 22 years or whatever the heck it is, I don't know that I've ever been more angry because other playoff losses, you felt like, okay, maybe we can get it back next year. I have zero faith that anything is going to change about Ryan Tannehill. It's like a movie that you already know the ending for. I despise his performance on the field as a human being. He may well be a great guy, But when you get paid $100 million, you have an obligation to perform at a high level. He has failed. He should be cut. He should be kicked to the curb. There is no way that he is capable of winning a Super Bowl. I don't believe that any uh, coach, I don't believe that any of his teammates, and I don't believe that any fan out there who has watched him play substantially believes that either. And so I am done with him. He needs to be gone. I have no uh, willingness to watch mediocrity. Furman, I was thinking about buying a box uh, of 20 tickets for the (laughs) Titans. I am finished with that idea. I will not support mediocrity. I'm not even sure that I will go to a Titans game if they trot Ryan Tannehill back out on the field next year. I'm serious. That's a lie. I'll make the over under a half a game and you will get guilted by your kids to go see it, even if it's not for the Titans because they want to see one of the opposing teams that's coming to town. My kids might be the only reason that I end up going. I have zero interest otherwise in actually going to watch this team 
at all. I despise Ryan Tannehill. And frankly, he also dodged all media interaction today, which is what cowards do. He hasn't taken ownership of the fact that everybody else, Furman, played amazing. Nine sacks. The defense covering for his failures time after time. The entire team balled out like crazy and Ryan Tannehill is the single reason they lost. I hate him. Uh, You know what? I can't really argue with most of what you've laid out there. I mean, you look at the way that game went and if you tell me the Titans defense performs to the level that we saw, they win that game going away 90% of the time if it's not for turnovers. And despite Ryan Tannehill's ineptitude early on in that game, whether it was the interception to start the game, the interception to start the second half, they still have an excellent chance. He has to put together one drive to get them into field goal range to punch their ticket to the AFC Championship, and they were unable to do that. When I look at the way that that game played out, the one other area that I thought was a little bit disconcerting, and I get being loyal and trusting your horse, no Titans fan who's watched Derrick Henry run at the best of his abilities as a dominant force could have taken away from that game that Derrick Henry was close to 100%. I was surprised that Deontay Foreman only got four carries as he showed a lot more burst, explosiveness, the ability to cut. And I really don't think the Bengals feared some of the power for Derrick Henry because there was no shake. And since he was so slow getting going on a lot of those runs, some of the carries that would have been four or five yards on Saturday would have been at least 15 yards plus. And I think the Titans had to realize at some point during the contest that Deontay Foreman was going to give them a better opportunity to hit the home run, much like we saw on the big running play. But there's no doubt about it. I think Titans fans have every reason to be disappointed. Maybe 57 million of them knowing that Ryan Tannehill will be back under center next year for the Titans because I can't see anybody taking on that contract for a roster that's so close to being a team to beat in the AFC, especially when you look at all that young quarterback talent. There's no reason to believe that Titans can get through Joe Burrow. They can get through Patrick Mahomes. They can get through Justin Herbert. They can get through Josh Allen. You know, I think the Titans are one of those teams, given the division they're in, they're always going to be competitive, but it almost feels like AFC purgatory, knowing you're close, but not so close, and maybe saying that they can climb the AFC mountain is the definition of a Sisyphusian task. Furman, I watched, and we'll get to this, the Kansas City Chiefs in 13 seconds get in field goal range. I watched Josh Allen absolutely painting like a Picasso. I mean, an unbelievable performance. I watched Matthew Stafford with 40 seconds left drive the length of the field nearly, hit Cooper Cup for a field goal. I even watched Jimmy G on the road make a drive to my get guy. a field goal. Don't Your discount guy, my G. guy. Gets discredited all the time. Does just enough to get you where you need to go. All right. So the Titans, even after they had gotten stopped on that third and fourth down when they didn't sneak the quarterback, they had the ball with two minutes and 40 seconds left at home against an inferior team and they had two timeouts and they managed to put themselves because they really didn't trust, I really believe, Ryan Tannehill. They put themselves in a position where he just throws the ball up for grabs into contested territory. The one thing that you cannot do, right? Worst case scenario, you go to overtime. The way the Titans were sacking Joe Burrow, I think the odds of Burrow and the Bengals driving the length of the field and getting a touchdown in overtime were really, really low. The only thing you had to avoid doing was throwing an interception, turning the ball over, and he did it. But moreover, the Titans just didn't trust him to be able to get the team into position. I I just, I'm 
thoroughly disgusted. I don't know how long it's going to be till I don't. I, I honestly, and this is embarrassing. I will be angry about this game for the rest of my life. I'm still angry about the Titans blowing it in '99, the year that. Uh, The Ravens blocked a field goal and got an interception. They had like 80 yards of total offense. The year Trent Dilfer won the Super Bowl. I like Trent Dilfer, by the way. He's a good dude. Uh, But I'm still angry about that game. This game is more infuriating because in 99, they had just come off the Super Bowl run. You're like, okay, maybe they can do it again next year. I really feel like the window is done because Tannehill sucks. And as you mentioned, uh, Allen, Mahomes, Burrow, uh, and Justin Herbert to say nothing of whether Lamar Jackson has any kind of return to excellence. There's yeah. a lot of teams in the AFC with better quarterbacks and you may be able to beat a better quarterback occasionally, but you very rarely can win two or three games with an inferior quarterback. That's why this was the Titans' chance, Furman. All they had to do was beat a young Bengals quarterback in Joe Burrow. They were the better team virtually everywhere, maybe at the exception of kicker and quarterback. Beat that team, and then maybe you can get past one or the other of Mahomes or Allen at home with a ruckus home crowd. Maybe you get a couple of big plays defensively. You make yourself, you already beat those two teams once at home. Maybe you can do it again. Instead, they shit the bed. No other way to put it. And really, they didn't shit the bed. Ryan fucking Tannehill sucks. And he sucked on the biggest game of his career. On the biggest stage, he fucking blew it. And I'm, I rarely yeah. curse. That's how mad I am. You know, I didn't see the fact that he ducked a lot of the media stuff rather than being the leader that you expect of your quarterback, franchise quarterback or otherwise. Go out there, own your mistakes, stare it in the eye and say, hey, look, I let the team down. I'm going to be better next season. And I'm going to give us a puncher's chance because to your point, everybody else raised their level of play. And I think coming into the season, the biggest question that all of us had, and I'll admit it, I thought the Titans talking about the level of optimism for this defense was completely irrational. And I didn't believe they were going to be capable of turning the corner, but they turned into one of the deepest, most athletic defensive lines. And you saw Joe Burrow under duress from start to finish in that football game. So if Tannehill is merely average and protects the football, you're in a great position Uh, I was extremely critical at Todd Downing. I don't think he called a great game by any stretch of the imagination. So he bears some of that responsibility. But to your point, when you look at the series of events, I think the Titans did things exactly the way you'd want with under three minutes to go. They played that that said, hey, look, it's either going to be us kicking a field goal as time expires or we're going to go to overtime because we trust our defense. The only thing that was going to bury the Titans in regulation was the potential turnover. That's what happened. And when you go back and watch some of the all-22 footage for that throw, Tannehill had so many other avenues to throw the ball. Literally every other receiver was more open than the one he threw it to. Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, you look at it, and I'm not going to put it on the defense. They were put in a compromising position. Uh, And to the Bengals' credit, uh, you have to love the swagger that they got of Chase McLaughlin. If what Joe Burrow said actually transpired, that he told them, hey, look, we're moving on to the AFC Championship, That dude was cool, calm, and collected going out there. And I think every Titans fan I imagine in that building thought the chances of him missing that game-winning field goal was about 1%. Yeah. I mean, and so so that's there. Bengals, what do you think about their chances against the Chiefs, by the way? We'll obviously talk about this on Thursday, Uh, too. Yeah, I I think it's an uphill battle. And I think, you know, as ridiculous as it sounds, the Bengals beating the Chiefs earlier this season is the worst thing for them in this matchup. And the reason I say that is because given what the Chiefs had to go through 
and the ridiculousness of the final two minutes against Buffalo, expecting an emotional letdown is normal. But I think all you have to do is go back to the game where Kansas City blew a 28-10 to 10 lead at one point against the Bengals. That's going to have their undivided attention. Patrick Mahomes reminded us yesterday why he is the best quarterback in the NFL. And to be quite honest, it's not close. Josh Allen was great, but I, you know, I think this isn't a hot take. When you look at the throws Allen made in that particular spot, yes, he dropped the ball into the bucket to Gabriel Davis, but it was a blown coverage not once but twice by the Kansas City defense. I mean, every quarterback in the NFL fits the ball into Gabriel Davis when he runs a route where a Kansas City defensive back falls down. But when you look at Mahomes, I'm not sure Tannehill would have seen him. <laughs> That's a very good point. He might have thrown it into, into the stands four rows deep uh, into the end zone. But you look at the plays Mahomes made, scrambling to keep plays alive, rolling out the arm angles and everything else. And, and I mean, man, oh man, is he fun to watch? And it's got to be, you know, disgusting for anybody who's a fan of AFC teams, let alone the AFC West, knowing you're going to have to contend with that. I, I just think the Bengals are going to potentially run into a buzzsaw. And when you look at Kansas City defensively, they're going to be able to get pressure, maybe not the same rate as the Tennessee Titans. And I just don't see how that Bengals stop unit, as banged up as they are, get stops if Kansas City is clicking on all cylinders. That being said, I think this total is extremely high at 54 and a half, 55, unless you get a lot of big plays, because I don't think you can ignore the fact that if Josh Allen doesn't lead the Bills down uh, for that touchdown and two-point conversion, I mean, that game ends 26-21, and it's coming in under the total. Uh, what stood out to you about the NFC games, uh, aside from the Packers special teams falling apart, um, and also obviously everything surrounding the, uh, huge give up the lead and then the massive conclusion with Matthew Stafford hitting Cooper cup. Uh, what do you think about that Rams versus 49ers matchup for a third time? Yeah, we can start with Saturday night. And I think a lot of people imagine cold conditions. Jimmy Garoppolo had never played in weather that bad, that Green Bay was going to go up there well-rested and take care of business. And after you watch the opening drive, I think a lot of us had that same mindset going up. Well, at least we'll be able to move on with our Saturday night because the 49ers can't move the football. Green Bay did exactly what you'd want to try and create that separation early on. But full credit uh, not only to Kyle Shanahan, but maybe more importantly to D'Amico Ryans for devising a defensive game plan to try and limit Green Bay's effectiveness. And we can say what we want about Matt LaFleur and his special teams, but if you're a franchise quarterback and a first ballot Hall of Famer like Aaron Rodgers is, I'm not blaming coaching. You need to go out there. You have to make plays. I think there were some throws uh, that he could have made. When you look at the deep ball late in that contest that fell incomplete, I mean, he had two or three receivers that were open underneath. I'm not sure his body language was the best. Now, do I think Green Bay was smart uh, with the frequency and how they ran the ball on first down to Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon before he got hurt? No, you go out there, you throw it around a little bit, you set up second and short, and you have the whole playbook at your disposal. But the 49ers never wilted. And when you look at this team top to bottom, they have to be the grittiest bunch in the playoffs. The scary thing for 49ers is when you go back and look at their resume, let's call it over the last six weeks maybe, going back to that game against the Titans, They've played one good half of football in all those games. They were great in the first half against Tennessee. They sucked in the second half. They sucked in the first half against the Houston Texans. They found another gear to separate and cover that game. They were miserable in the first half against the Rams. They found another level to even get into the postseason against the Cowboys. They were phenomenal in the first half. They were well below average in the second half. And they were downright hideous, especially on the offensive side in the first half against Green Bay. But they were able to do enough generating yards, changing field position, and putting themselves in a position to win. 
Uh, I have to think Green Bay is going to uh, revisit their special team situation where they finished dead last in overall efficiency. Uh, but I'm not going to take anything away from the Niners going into hostile territory, winning that game. And I think the one thing that people need to factor into their handicapping when they look at the NFC game on Sunday, it's going to be a 49ers home game. Whether you want to admit it or not, I mean, you look at some of the prices on the secondary market, some of the LA beat writers, and I know the Rams are doing everything they can to try and prohibit 49ers fans from getting tickets. It will be a sea of red. It will be loud like it was week 18. And I think the you're going to be talking about the Rams needing to deploy a silent count. The other takeaway for me from the Rams, and not to discredit anything they accomplished, because when you go on the road and you build a 27 to three lead, that says something. But I do worry about how they weren't able to close it out in the fourth quarter. They look scared. And I hate to use that because these are grown men playing football that are outstanding in what they do, but they couldn't close it out when they needed to. And when you look at the Bucs down the stretch, I think there's some real questions and concerns about how good Tampa really was. The Rams will have their hands full, a dangerous underdog mentality for San Francisco. And you wonder if this game's close, Sean McVay's going, Jesus Christ, what's it going to take for me to finally get Kyle Shanahan off my back? Uh, I think we're in for a treat in that game, maybe more so than the early game where I think Kansas City has the potential to run away and hide from Cincinnati if the moment is too big for Joe Burrow. Uh, maybe more so the Cincinnati defense than that Bengals offense. What is there any value at all on the futures now that we're down to the final four? You know, I think minimal, um, given the fact that I'm a big proponent of the 49ers. I think if you think it's the 49ers and Chiefs, you know, betting Kansas City essentially on a money line rollover, I think at last check it was plus 135 uh, for them to win the Lombardi trophy. You can say that that's intriguing maybe for the Rams, uh, but it's so hard to try and find value at this point in the season. You're better off just kind of betting one of these teams on the money line and rolling it over. Uh, I mean, if you're making a case for Cincinnati to win the thing, you know, why not just bet them on the money line against Kansas City, take your money and run. So futures are always tough when you get into the final four. What else is standing out for you uh, in advance of the AFC, NFC championship games? Any early futures, you're, I mean, uh, props you're paying attention to? Anything, uh, anything that stands out there? Yeah, one number that's already moved a little bit in the Kansas City Chiefs team total. Uh, it was bet up from 30 and a half to 31. I think Kansas City's offense will do plenty uh, against this Bengals defense. I want to dig into that previous matchup a little bit more because I think some of those numbers that we saw, in the, I think it was a 34-31 final, slightly misleading when you talk about Kansas City building a 28 to 10 lead. When you look at Kansas City and some of the weapons that they have at their disposal, kind of scary how Jarek McKinnon has been integrated in the offense. We saw Clyde Edwards-Alaire uh, have a big performance. But for as critical, too, as we want to be of Tennessee and the way things went there, what the hell are the Chiefs doing? And the most pivotal drive of the game up 23-21. Oh, yeah, first and 10 from the 16. I get running on maybe first or second down. But how do you take the ball completely out of Mahomes' hand? I would have loved to know what the media response and the firing squad would have been if Buffalo ends up winning that game 29-26 and how Andy Reid is able to justify their trio of plays there, whether it's him, whether it's Eric Bieniemy or anything else. But I think oftentimes poor decision-making is lost in the shuffle, especially in the wake of a win. But of course, you're going to give a benefit of the doubt to a quarterback and head coach that have already won the Super Bowl. You almost get a free pass there. As far as the Rams 49ers game, we saw a little bit of under money coming initially. And I think this could be a game that's a grinder. I don't think you're going to see either of these offenses go out there and be absolutely uh, go bonkers in any capacity. Uh, I think this is a 49ers team. You're going to want to monitor the injury report. 
But I really believe this could be a breakout performance for George Kittle. He's almost been the forgotten man, and he really would have been given the costly drop early in the game against Green Bay. Obviously, he redeemed himself when the 49ers went back to the exact same look to move the football late in that contest. I, I was laughing. Like, sometimes when you make a play call, just think of what could go wrong with it if it fails. Uh, and obviously, it failed in terms of getting the first down. But if Travis Kelsey makes a bad pitch, for instance, you know, on the option it was, play it was, that they – Was it Blake? It was Blake Bell, though, wasn't it? I don't even oh, think was it was it? Kelsey. I, I, I thought, think it was, sorry, I thought it was yeah. – uh, you're right. I yeah, thought it was Kelsey. Which probably made it worse. You got yeah. your backup tight end handling the ball under center. I mean, Oklahoma barely trusted him to run the option when they gave him the nickname the Belldozer back in the day. It would have been really funny if he had fumbled that snap uh, after being under center or if he had made a bad pitch, you know, and the ball had gone skittering down the field and somebody had been able to scoop and score. Uh, sometimes I think when you run a play, like, look, if Derrick Henry, uh, and I was going to ask you about, a lot of people are talking about that one versus two decision for uh, Mike Vrabel. But on, you know, at the goal line, if you hand off to Derrick Henry and he doesn't get in, nobody's like, oh, what an awful play call. But, you know, yep. if you run the, 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 the option and take the ball out of, uh, out of Patrick Mahomes' hand, by the way, also at least have a wrinkle where he throws it, right? When the, when the Sean McDermott is running down the sideline screaming option, option like he was, maybe you go ahead and call a timeout if you're Andy Reid and say, hey, let's redo this. The head coach already knows exactly what we're going to do. At least counterpunch. Uh, but I was going to ask you, you, we've talked a lot for years now about the decision to go for one versus two. So I want to take you back to that Mike Vrabel decision. Sure. Titans score. I think it was like five minutes maybe left in the second quarter. Tie the game. Actually make the extra point to go up 7-6. And then the Bengals had an extra man on the field. Get flagged. Titans decide to take the point off the board. It would, by the way, be ultimately the only lead that the Titans had for the entire game. And it was short-lived. They take the penalty instead. Go uh, to the one-yard line and go for two. Right call, wrong call from a win probability perspective. Five minutes to go in the second quarter. Take the extra point off the board. Again, I think that's important because they already had kicked the extra point. So it was good. It's not like you could have missed it. Uh, And uh, go for two. Right call, wrong call. Right call. Uh, You have to take advantage of that, especially for a team that had been one of the best in the league as far as red zone execution. Goal to go. I mean, you can say what you want about the play call, but if you have one chance to pick up a point from the one-yard line, it changes in a lot of ways that Cincinnati has to go about their play calling and potential dynamics down the road. So a right call there, I have absolutely no issues with it that early in the game. You have plenty of opportunities to try and get that back if you're the Titans. I know a lot of the old-school guys will say that gives up momentum. I'm not of that mindset that suddenly the momentum changes and the Bengals feel like they've been given a lifeline in that particular instance. I don't have the win probability charts in front of me. It's not anything exponential, uh, to my knowledge, given uh, some of the past studying we've done there. But I'm I'm all for it. I mean, when you're looking at the execution, moving that up, you know, half the distance to the goal there, uh, I think it's the right play. Again, the big question that I had with some of it, and, you know, Monday morning quarterback is a luxury we're afforded that you're not in the heat of the moment. Derrick Henry, for me, didn't have that burst and looked like he was slow, like you're driving a stick shift car trying to go from first to second gear that he wasn't able to accelerate. So that would be the only scary part about it. And that was something that plagued him throughout the game. I mean, look, plotting uh, much more methodical. And you can understand with a guy that's running with screws and a metal plate in his foot, 
to go 20 carries for 62 yards, maybe more so than leaning on Deontay Foreman that had a little bit more shake and shimmy. And maybe at that point, that's where you go with the read option, not on third and one and then get swallowed up behind the line of scrimmage on fourth. What about the uh, what about the decision? Some people will say, well, the Titans would have been up 17-16 and trying to run the clock out as opposed to needing to drive there. My response in general is everything is different if the Bengals are yeah. getting the ball down it's, as opposed to an it's the butter, Yeah, it's the butterfly effect there. So if you look at the causation there, I mean, the Bengals could be going for two, looking to chase a point. The way the game gets played after that is significantly different. And that's one of the things, not to deep dive an analytics discussion, that I think a lot of people lose sight of. When they look at a fourth down failure, especially if it's a goal-to-go situation or at the three-yard line, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Part of the reason that you go for it is because the upside of scoring seven trumps three. And even if you turn the ball over, you've now left 97 yards for your opponent to try and go. And the possibility for getting a three and out and flipping the field, getting a turnover, there's so many positive benefits that come from it. So when people go, well, it's a fourth down failure and that's why it worked wrong. Well, what happens if three plays later they punt and I start the ball on the 40-yard line and I'm able to score a touchdown there. Instead of kicking two field goals, I now have a touchdown and it's a plus one net advantage. So I do think you have to be cognizant of game flow and everything else. But to say that one point would have made the difference and the Titans could have just bled the clock late in the game, I'll never ascribe to that particular theory uh, as it comes to being ultra aggressive. The same way that when you look at how the Bills decided to go for it on fourth down on their opening drive, not only in midfield, but also the goal to go situation. They don't score there. The game plays out differently. And there are so many different dynamics in play that it's easy for all of us sitting in the confines uh, of our warm homes with cold domestic light beer in our fridge for $2 a pop uh, to go, oh, well, you should have done shit differently. In the heat of the moment, go in with the game plan and be willing to accept the consequences, good, bad, or indifferent. And I think, you know, we see it on a football field, maybe more so than we do in the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, a little bit different with relief pitchers. But if you go in with a plan and go, okay, if this works, here's what I'm going to do going forward. I think it's the mistake a lot of sports bettors make that they adhere to confirmation bias, that they make a bet that had a you know high variance outcome there that they lost. But if they make that bet over a hundred size over a hundred trial sample size, they're going to win at 70 out of hundred. Don't let the 30 failures influence what you're going to do going forward. And I think that's the real problem you run into with the old school football guy on one side and the analytics guy. But I also do think that some of these head coaches that make these 50-50 decisions always hide behind the crutches of analytics. Mike McCarthy, the perfect example. Like, Mike, don't kid yourself. You don't blame the analytics team when Dak Prescott is running the ball for your quarterback draw late when you haven't done anything of an aggressive nature all season long. Uh, by the way, sp- uh, sports gambling stocks. You can go get your bets in, by the way, fanduel.com slash clay up to $1,000. No risk first wager. Pick any winner here, $5. You can win $150, 30 to 1 payout. Just go check it out at fanduel.com slash clay. Uh, we were texting earlier in the day. The stock market was down 1,000 points. Uh, it came back, ended up 100 points. Uh, but the sports gambling stocks have been getting absolutely obliterated. Um, what do you think about the overall sports gambling marketplace right now? I get a lot of questions about these uh, as well. If you look at what they have done over time, there have been uh, big collapses in general. Uh, would you be putting money into sports gambling stocks now or not? 
I think from a some perspective, there is a long-term play to be made here, but I wouldn't be putting my money into just sports gambling stocks. And what do I mean there? When I look at the landscape right now, there are essentially, let's call it four big players that are out there. There's FanDuel, who we know is supported by the Flutter Group, and it's a massive bookmaking enterprise that's well-established throughout the UK. We know they have a number of diverse brands, FanDuel being the most prominent domestically, but Patty Power, Betfair, and a slew of others. You have DraftKings, which is more of a domestic brand who doesn't really own any of their intellectual property. I mean, they have a platform that operates in conjunction with SB Tech. They don't even have their own risk management team to some level. So a lot of the stuff is through third party. You have MGM, who's made a huge investment in the space. Any Titans fans who's gone, who've gone to Nissan Stadium know exactly what they've done. Not coincidence that every time there's an extra point being kicked in that stadium, you see a giant ad for BetMGM on the Jumbotrons in the end zone. And the other thing about MGM that's different than a lot than the FanDuel and DraftKings, they have physical properties, not only in Las Vegas, but across the country. And the same can be said about Caesars, who's more of the Johnny come lately, who've created a shitstorm for themselves, given everything that's gone on in New York. So if people want to search out Caesars New York, that's a fascinating case study and how you didn't exactly anticipate critical mass. And we'll see how sustainable, I believe their 43% market share through the first couple of weeks is. So when I look at all of these players, we've talked about it at great lengths. I really believe it's a race to the bottom for these companies and how long they can sustain high customer acquisition costs, what the retention models look like. And from a sports betting standpoint, why it was so attractive to investors is you always had positive cash flow coming in top line. It's a business known for liquidity, but what's actually flowing through to the balance sheet. And I think, you know, as we look at a little bit of the scare that's gone on in the NASDAQ and the S&P, People are realizing that the flow through for some of these operators, there's nothing there. What's the path to profitability look like? Is getting there in 2023 realistic? Or are we talking about a three to five year runway? I mean, you saw, and we traded notes a little bit over the win situation. I mean, Win thought their valuation for Win Interactive was $3 billion. Now they're willing to sell at a deep discount for $500 million. That's Once according to, by the way, sorry to, sorry to cut you off, but that's New a York New Post. York Post story that was out yep. saying that Win, who a lot of you know from uh, Vegas, the Win Hotel, they did the ads with Shaq and with Ben Affleck that they were going to be a big player in this space. They thought that their value was around $3 billion. And now they're evidently trying to get somehow 500 million out, which Furman probably, they're probably just trying to recoup whatever they put into this investment in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the way things have gone there. And the one thing I will say for Win that I don't think a lot of people, unless they follow the gaming space, will know Win Interactive is its own standalone division. So when you look at, bless you, when you look at the way things are done from a bookmaking standpoint, as far as the brick and mortar and even the app, Nevada is siloed completely separately than Win Interactive. And the risk management team is separate there. So when you're talking about a $3 billion valuation or now a deep discount of $500 million, according to the New York Post article, you know, what are you buying for $500 million? There's no proprietary tech. You're basically paying for a database there. And maybe in a best case scenario, if you're another operator looking to acquire it, you can use the win name and skin some of the sports books out there. But I don't see assets that are worth that. Because it, the studio that they have is a physical location out here that I believe they've done with Blue Wire. So I don't think that gets baked into any deals. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what these sportsbook operators are going to do. And it's what anyone who's studied statistics or probability has read case study on after case study. It's prisoner's dilemma. And I think that's where all of these sportsbooks are. 
MGM and Caesars can absorb losses for a little while because they have physical properties. They can market a little bit differently. Flutter Group, FanDuel has a massive infrastructure throughout the UK. They have their own risk and trading team. They have their proprietary tech so they can do things differently. And I think part of the reason that we've seen DraftKings stock get absolutely lambasted, and I mean, you and I got in at the SPAC level at about 10 or 11 bucks a pop. I unloaded most of my stuff for 50, and I'm debating when rock bottom is to try and get back. You know, where does, where do they fit in the ecosystem? And that's before we even talk about Penn and Barstool. Barstool is another who I think they've lowered their acquisition costs given the strength of Stoolies and everybody else that they have in their network. But at some level, you know, they don't even have their own proprietary stuff. They're using a third-party platform, both risk management and tech stack as well. And we've talked about it. You know, Penn took a gamble in terms of going into Barstool, one that I think paid dividends to try and resurrect their brand. But at the same time, you know, what does all of this look like? And when do we get to the point where a customer's got to make a decision uh, for himself or herself to go, hey, here's my brand loyalty. I'm going to be FanDuel through and through. I'm going to be DraftKings because you can only offer promotions for so long before you're basically discounting your bottom line. And that's even before we get into the tax rates in New York where it's what, 51%. And I think I read earlier this morning, the proposed tax rate of Hawaii legalizes sports betting as high as 55%. Operators at some point are going to have to pass the cost along to their consumer, and it's just a question of when, not necessarily if. Good stuff. As always, Todd Furman, we will talk to you on Thursday in advance of the AFC and the NFC Championship Games. Talk to you then, man. Always a pleasure. And hey, Clay, one last thing. Remember, if you're thinking about buying a box for the Titans, which I know you said you're not going to, this is the time to get in. I mean, everybody would have been running in the wake of a Super Bowl victory. You have to imagine in two years, you'll have a better quarterback. You'll see if there's a little bit more optimism. So maybe you can I have zero, deal and get no, in there. no, no, this is important. Uh, a few years ago, you'll remember this, the tight, uh, sorry, the University of Tennessee basketball team lost in the Sweet 16 in excruciating oh, fashion to Purdue. I, I, re I remember it well. I, re yeah. I remember it well to the Purdue Boilermakers. That's the last time I was unable to sleep because... I knew that that was a Tennessee team that was good enough to win a national championship, that there would probably, maybe that would be the only time that would exist in my life. Let's be honest. I'm 42. Uh, Tennessee's had a couple of teams that were good enough, in my opinion, to win national championships. That's the best one in my life. The Titans, uh, and, and since then, frankly, like I don't really care that much because I'm not sitting around like, oh, it's a big deal to me if some team wins the SEC East or the SEC West. If you're not winning a championship, I don't really care. I don't care if the Titans win the AFC South. I only see it as a means and a method to win a Super Bowl. The Titans, I 100% am of the belief, if you look at Patrick Mahomes, if you look at Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, you can throw in Lamar probably in that mix, they're not going to win a Super Bowl. This was their chance. That's why I can't sleep now. So, in much as I wrote off Tennessee basketball, in my mind, I'm essentially writing off the Tennessee Titans now. They are not a Super Bowl contender. I don't think that they will be a Super Bowl contender for any of the next 10 or 15 years because they don't have a quarterback. And I don't think it's very likely that they're ever going to have one as good as Mahomes or, uh, or Josh Allen. And those guys are young. They're going to be playing high-level football until they're 37, 38 at the, uh, at the latest. So... Titans are going to suck. They had a chance to make a run at the Super Bowl. They failed because Ryan Tannehill shit the bed. And uh, I, I legitimately, maybe my kids want to go. I legitimately am not sure that I'll even go watch a game because why would I go watch a game when I know how it's going to end 
and the Titans are thoroughly mediocre. I just, I don't, there's nothing, I feel bad for all the coaches and the players who actually did their jobs at a high level uh, for, uh, for to get to the point where they were playing in that game against the Bengals and then to have your loser, total fuck-up quarterback fail as bad when you've paid him $100 million. Like, I just, I, I, if, if I were in charge of the Titans, I would find a way to get rid of Ryan Tannehill right now. He's not going to win a Super Bowl. And once you know a guy's not going to win a Super Bowl for you, I don't know why you keep him. No, it's a tough spot to be in. I mean, when you talk about paying a quarterback, you better make sure you have an elite guy. Otherwise, it's crippling. And I think out here, the Raiders are going to go through something very similar this offseason. Once they get the GM and head coach situation sorted out, do they believe paying Derek Carr gives them an opportunity to get over the hump? I mean, in my opinion, there's nothing more frustrating as a sports fan than being stuck in purgatory or that level of mediocrity. Either be really good uh, where you have your elite level talent and your franchise quarterback or be really bad where you can understand why you're trying to rebuild and reach that level. But maybe, Clay, the silver lining in all of this is the money that you would have spent on that luxury box at Nissan Stadium for the Titans. You can buy up a minority stake in a potential expansion Major League Baseball team if it does come to Nashville. That'd be great. I would have a. I, I think there's almost a hundred percent chance that I would have a small stake in the in the in the major league team if we got a team coming to Nashville. Small one, but a stake. See? Hey, that's what that's what it takes, and you'd have a house divided because I'm not sure your boys' loyalty would switch away from the Braves, even if Dad owned a team of an expansion franchise right in their backyard. Yeah, I mean, Dad owned a team would be an exaggeration. Like I owned Outkick, I would own a small <laughs> part of a uh, of a team if uh, if Major League Baseball came here. Berman, uh, thank you as always. Uh, we'll talk on Thursday. You got it, my friend. Have a great week. All right, that is Todd Furman. I am Clay Travis. This has been The Fade.